Today we'll be continuing our sermon series uh, through the tabernacle. Uh, Today we're in chapter 30. Uh, Next week or the week after we'll be in chapter 31, meaning uh, there's just two more sermons and we'll be through this portion of um, Exodus uh, on the tabernacle. Uh, In our passage this morning, God is going to instruct Moses to make uh, two new items for the tabernacle Two new items, two important items found within the tabernacle. As we'll see, the golden altar for incense and the bronze basin. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning, starting in verse 1. Again, Exodus 30, verse 1. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be on one, or one, of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its side and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it under its molding and two opposite sides of it you shall make them and they shall be holders for the poles with which to carry it you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony in front of the mercy seat that's above the testimony where i will meet with you and aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning When he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or grain offering. And you should not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father God, just thank you, Lord. I thank you for this time, Lord, that we can come together and reflect on your grace, your goodness, that we can worship you for who you are and what you have done for us, Lord, as we're reminded, Lord, at the Lord's table of your death, Lord, and and your resurrection, that not only did you atone for our sins and and make payment, Lord, uh, the penalty that we deserved on the cross, Lord, but you were raised from the dead and you ascended to the most holy place, to the, the throne room, Lord, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, Lord. God, I pray Lord, that we understand this passage this morning and what you were teaching the Israelites, pointing them forward to your son, Lord. God, I I pray that you're with us, Lord, that we would uh, see how this applies to us, Lord, New Testament believers. God, be with us this morning in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. So again, we're going through chapter 30 this morning, and there's really four different topics in this chapter 
Verses 1 through 10, what we just read is the golden altar for incense. This gets introduced this morning. Uh, Verses 11 through 16, we're going to see is a a census tax, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Verses 17 through 21 is the bronze basin, another item that is getting introduced in this chapter. And finally, verses 22 through 38 are the instructions on how to make the oil that would be used to anoint the tabernacle and the incense that would be burned within the tabernacle. Uh, We're going to look at uh, three different things this morning. So there's three parts of the sermon. Uh, I want to start this morning by briefly looking at the census tax and just kind of walking through that verse by verse. But I want to spend most of our time on these two items that are getting introduced in this chapter, the bronze basin and the altar for incense. And I want to do them in that order, meaning we're going to go a little out of order than uh, what this chapter has um, because I really want to end with what we read this morning, the, the altar of incense. Um, so let's just jump right into uh, the, pass- or the um, sermon this morning. Again, three parts, the census tax, the bronze basin, and the altar of incense. We'll start with the census tax. And again, I'm not going to spend much time here. To be honest, I'm not exactly sure why this was placed right here. It's connected to the tabernacle because, uh, as you'll see, the money collected from the census, the census tax or fee, was to be used for the service of the tent of meetings or the tabernacle. So there is a connection, but I think what's more important than the connection is actually uh, uh, the warning. If you would look at verse 11, it says this. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel... Then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them that there be no plague among them when you number them. Now, there's a couple things I want to point out about uh, the census and the tax. Uh, The first one is this. God doesn't command. I don't know if you noticed that, but God doesn't command Israel to take a census. He doesn't even recommend it. He just assumes it's going to happen. Look at verse 12 again. It says, when you take the census of the people of Israel. Again, he just assumes it will happen. That's the first thing I want to point out. The second thing is this. When or if Israel was going to take a census, they were to pay a special tax or a fee to avoid a plague. And I just want you to remember the context of Exodus. That word plague has... um, some pretty strong meaning to the, the, the people of Israel and what they've witnessed uh, in Egypt. Again, God even calls this fee a ransom for their lives. Now, I point this out because even though Israel wasn't for, forbidden from taking a census, it seems like God was discouraging it. In fact, it was both dangerous and costly for Israel to take a census. If they didn't follow God's instructions perfectly, there's a threat of a plague, meaning really a threat of death going through the people. And even if they did follow God's instructions perfectly, the people had to pay a tax. And as we know, taxes aren't popular. Um, So why does God give these rules surrounding a census? I, I really think he was just discouraging the people of Israel from taking censuses or taking them very often. In antiquity, in, in this, this time period, the main reason you took a census was to number the men who can fight. In fact, a lot of times you only numbered the men that were above a certain age, right? men of fighting age, to see how big of an army you had. The 
king would do that to see what kind of resources he had to go to war. But Israel wasn't to be a nation of warriors. In fact, they were only to go to war by the command of God. And if God directed them to go to war, as we see he often did in the Old Testament, but when he did, they should have faith in God, being God's people, being a nation of God's people, not faith in their numbers. Therefore, God was discouraging Israel from taking a census. They were to trust God not in the numbers of, of fighting men that they had. And this is why there was rules surrounding the census. God's people were, again, to trust in him as their king, not in earthly means or strength or numbers. And, and before I move on, again, I want to spend more time on, on the two items that get introduced uh, in this chapter. Uh, don't we do that? Don't we put, put our faith a lot of times in numbers, uh, instead of just trusting in the Lord. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't plan. In fact, the Bible shows that we should plan. Uh, but sometimes we have more faith in our bank account, our retirement plan. Um, as a minister, sometimes you have more faith in the numbers of people coming than just faithfulness. We're called to be faithful. Right? And that may be planning, but I think you see a, a, a lesson here that, that God was teaching the Israelites that they were to trust in him, not their abilities, not their strength, that they are to have faith in him and, and do what he's called them to do. And a lot of times, God called the, his people to do something that was uh, un... What's the right word? Not unethical. Un, uh, awkward. Interesting. Think of uh, their first battle when they get into the promised land. Jericho. Right? Don't count your numbers. Instead, go around this building seven times and then scream at the walls. <laughs> right? It's about faith, faithfulness, not numbers. In fact, Pastor Andy used to say this all the time. Um, Jeremiah was a, a faithful uh, prophet who had really no converts. Um, but then you look at uh, uh, Jonah, right, who was an unfaithful prophet, a prophet who had 185,000 converts. Right? It's about faithfulness, right? not numbers. So... I think that's the lesson that we learn in that passage. But again, I want to switch gears, and I really want to focus on these two items that get introduced in this chapter. And the first one is the bronze basin. So if you would, look at verse 17. But 17, it says this. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a, bronze of ba- or a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you should put water in it. Again, this is a, a bronze basin. It's, it's placed in the courtyard, the outside part of the tabernacle, between the bronze altar and the tent of meetings, or tent of meeting, the tent portion of the tabernacle. Right? This is why it's bronze, is because it's outside. It's away outside of the heavenly part, the tent part of the tabernacle, meaning when you entered the gates of the tabernacle into the courtyard, the very first thing you saw was the bronze altar, right? A large altar where they would burn all the sacrifices, right? On the other side of the bronze altar was the bronze basin, which was right in front of the tent of meetings, right in front of the tent portion as you entered into the heavenly part of the tabernacle. Look at the end of verse 18. It says this, and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands 
and their feet. The basin was for washing, specifically washing Aaron and his sons, the priests, hands and feet, as they would enter into the, the tent portion of the tabernacle. Look at verse 20. It says this, When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statue forever to them, even to him and to his offering throughout their generations. This means this wash basin that was right in front of the entrance to the tent would have been used constantly, continuously. Aaron and his sons, the priests, would be washing their hands and feet over and over and over again as they went in and out of the tent portion as they were going to do sacrifices. In fact, one commentary put it this way, before a priest went inside the tent of meeting to perform his sacred duties, he would stop, by, stop at the bronze basin it was located in front of the tent uh, to uh, remind the priest to wash before entering. They washed their hands and their feet, the body parts they used to serve God. The priests also had to wash up before they made any kind of sacrifice on the great bronze altar. As the priests came and went, they were always stopping at the basin for cleansing. And the basin, again, was in constant use, cleaning the hands and the feet of the priests. Remember what I said last week? I said in the Old Testament, over and over and over again, we see this connection from uncleanness, sinfulness, and death. They're all related in the Old Testament. Uncleanness, sinfulness, and death. Therefore, if the priests were going to serve the Lord, if they were going to draw near to the presence of God within the tent, if they were going to enter into the holy place, they needed to be washed. In fact, listen to Psalm 24, verse 3. It says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Again, uncleanness, sinfulness, and death, these are all related. And they cannot be associated with God. Therefore, the priests needed to be washed and be cleansed over and over and over and over again as he entered into the tent. But this leads to a question, and I don't know if you're asking this right now, but it's a question I had as I approached this passage, and I think it's a very important question. In fact, I think it's a very, very important question. Wasn't he already washed? After I did the study last week and preached last week during his ordination, wasn't he washed at that point? If the priest was bathed at his ordination, in other words, made clean, if his sins had have been atoned for at his ordination, why would he need to wash again, and not only that, but wash again over and over and over again? I, I think this is a very important question, and I really think we get the answer most clearly in the New Testament. So if you would, turn to John 13. We'll be back in Exodus 30, but turn to John 13, verse 1 real quick. The Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 1. A very familiar passage. Again, I hope you've seen that there's a strong connection between the Gospel of John and the book of Exodus. 
I think there's elements in this passage that you'll see a connection. Verse 1 says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, there's a connection right there, Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, uh, Simon's son, uh, to betray him, uh, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taken a towel, tied it around his waist. Now listen to verse 5. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was, a, that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Listen to verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, wash my whole body then. We know this story. Listen how Jesus responds to Peter. This is super important. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean. In other words, according to Jesus, there's really two types of washing for the believer. There's one where the, the whole person is bathed, The one who is bathed, Jesus said, does not need to wash. He's clean, in other words. His sins have been washed away. This happens at salvation. And Jesus makes it clear that this washing washing only happens once. It doesn't need to be repeated. He's completely clean. That's what Jesus says. Does not need to wash. But there's another type of washing. Verse 5 Look at verse 5. It says this, And he, that's Jesus, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has, been, has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. And according to Jesus, there's a different type of washing where only the feet were washed. This washing happened after salvation or after justification. There's a washing that happen in the sanctification process, where one is becoming more and more like Christ. In other words, just because we are saved doesn't mean we are sinless. We are declared righteous. We are justified. We don't have to face the penalty of our sins, but we are still sinners still struggling and battling with the flesh and with worldliness, with with our pride. Therefore, there's a washing that happens continuously, continuously after salvation in the sanctification process. It's the washing John, remember John's the author of the Gospel of John, but he's also the author of 1 John, 
Right? The same writer, the disciple that understood what Jesus was teaching, this is, this is what he talks about in 1 John 1, 9. He says this, if we, he's talking to Christians, if we confess our sins, he, this is God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In our justification, we are declared righteous. We are, we are saved. Just like the priests, we are clothed with, with holy garments, Christ's righteousness. And we talked about this a lot the last two weeks. But in our sanctification, we are slowly becoming more and more like Christ. Slowly becoming more and more righteous. Therefore, we need continuous cleansing. Again, 1 John 1, 9 if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Meaning, again, there's two types of washing for the Christian. Just like there's two types of washing for the priest. One at the ordination for the priest, where I believe the whole body was washed. You don't know that for sure, but that, that's my guess, just looking at the the meta-narrative of scripture that um, the whole body was washed. He was bathed, in other words, representing the priest's sins were being washed away. And that happened once. It happened at ordination. But after that, there was a continuous washing of, of the priest's hands and feet at the bronze basin, which was a reminder that even though the priest was declared righteous, remember he had a, a crown that says, holy to the Lord, he was declared righteous, yet he was still a sinner. Needed continuous cleansing, okay, symbolized by washing his hands and feet as he entered the presence of God. Before we move on, I think the symbolism is clear, but I also think there's something very similar in the New Testament when it comes to communion, the Lord's table. And I'm glad we're going through this passage as it is uh, the last Sunday of the, the month where we take communion together in unity. What are we celebrating when we take communion? What's that? Christ's death, right? We're celebrating Christ's death and the fact that we are completely, 100%, because of Christ's death, because of his blood, 100% clean saved, justified through his death, through the blood of Christ. But I intentionally read a different portion of the, the passage this morning because it doesn't mean we are sinless. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, this is what we read, most of us, when we come together uh, that, that serve the table. This is the passage that we go to. It's kind of tradition in our church to go to this passage. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Let me just read through it. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that, that he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my blood, which is, or my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this, the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's good news, by the way. We're saved. 100% justified, 100% clean. Christ's death 
has atoned for all of our sins, past, present, future. But that doesn't mean we are sinless in the sanctification sense. That's why verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Therefore, verse 28, let a person examine himself. Then, and so, uh, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is why we almost always take a moment of silence, self-reflection before communion, a time to confess one's sins before the Lord, a time of cleansing. It's a time of cleansing. That's what 1 John 1, 9 tells us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Not in a justification sense, because we're already, already cleansed in that sense, but in a sanctification sense, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, there's two types of washing. One that happens at salvation, where we put our faith in Christ But this doesn't mean we are perfectly holy within ourselves when we are saved. Therefore, there's a second type of washing, one that happens after salvation, one that should happen continuously as we grow more and more like Christ, as we continue to confess our sins to the Lord and he continues to cleanse us. And this is extremely important. I I wanted to spend some time on it because understanding the difference between justification and sanctification, right, is a big deal because when you mix up these two doctrines, it's led in the history of the church to, to all types of false teachings. At salvation, we are justified. Saved from the penalty of sin, we are clean in a justification sentence. Christ's righteousness imputed to us. But after salvation, we start the sanctification process, which is a a general uh, ongoing or gradual ongoing transformation where we slowly become more and more like Christ. The washing at the bronze basin pointed forward to the continuous washing that happens in the sanctification process. So that's the bronze basin. If you would turn back to Exodus chapter 30. Because there's a second item that I want to talk about, and that's the golden altar for incense. It's the beginning of the chapter, but I wanted to save it for last this morning. The golden altar for incense. If you would look at verse 1, this is Exodus chapter 30, verse 1. It says this, You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. Again, this is the golden altar. It's different than the bronze altar. This altar was for burning incense. It's much smaller than the bronze altar. According to this, it's, it's probably about a, a foot and a half square and no more than three feet high. Verse three, you shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its side and its horns. 
and you shall make a molding of gold around it, and you shall make two golden rings for it under its molding on two opposite sides of it. You shall make them, and you shall, uh, and, there sh- and, and they shall be holders for the poles with which to carry it. Again, it's just like all the other items within the tabernacle, it needed to be portable because the tabernacle itself was portable. And they were to be carried by the poles. Verse 5, you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Right? That's how they would carry this uh, golden altar. Right? Verse 6, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony and in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. This means that this altar, this golden altar, was right in front of the veil. Right in front of the veil, in the holy place, right? But the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place. And this altar was right in front of the veil with the two cherubim on it. The throne room of God. In fact, it's so closely connected to the most holy place or the holy of holies, the throne room of God, that that later biblical writers just describe it as part of the, the holy of holies. Even though it was outside of the veil. This means for the average priest... The high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year, but for the average priest, this was the closest place he got to the presence of God. Right in front of the entrance, right in front of the throne room of God was the the golden altar of incense. Verse 7, And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamp, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamp at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Verse 9. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Only incense were allowed to be burned on this altar and and specific incense. In fact, God gives directions on how to make the incense at the end of this chapter. But look at verse 9. It says this, You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or strange incense. It could be translated that way. There's a specific thing that that was to be altered on this, this altar and it was a specific incense. Verse 10, and Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generation. It is most holy to the Lord. So what was the purpose of this altar? What was its significance? Again, Almost every single item has some kind of symbolic meaning behind it that's teaching the Israelites. In fact, almost every single item is pointing them forward to Christ. So what's the the purpose of this altar that was right in front of the most holy place, the throne room of God? Well, there's a couple practical reasons for the altar. First, it would have filled the tent with a, a sweet smell. And that's important because I'm sure there was a stench you think about it with all the blood and dead animals 
Right? So the incense would have covered that smell. So that is a practical reason. A second practical reason of the, the, the burnt incense is that it would have filled the tabernacle with smoke, right? further veiling the holy presence of God. Right? Just like Mount Sinai, the smoke around Mount Sinai veiled God's holy glory, which protected the people from, from seeing God directly. And we have learned in Exodus 33, verse 20, where God said, you cannot see my face, for, for man shall not see me and live. In other words, the, the smoke helped veil God's presence. He had a veil, but then the smoke. Right? It protected the priests as they entered the holy place. Again, it was a dangerous job to be a priest, getting close to the presence of God. So there's some practical reasons uh, for the altar, but I think the, the main purpose is more symbolic. The incense of the altar was burned, and these incense were turned into smoke, and the smoke symbolized the prayer of God's people. Now let me show you a few verses why I think this is the, the, the purpose of this altar. Psalm 141.1 says this, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and my, the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Luke 1.8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. There's this connection between the incense and prayer. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled, but when he saw him and Fear fell on him, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard. In a connection between the incense and prayer. This is more clearly seen in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5 verse 8 says this, And when, you have, and when, uh, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And Revelation 8 verse 3 says this, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Just like the tabernacle, this golden altar was right in front of the throne room of God. And verse 4 says this, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. The incense on the altar represented the prayers of God's people, the saints, rising up as they were burned, the smoke rising up to him. And think about the altar where it was placed again. Look at verse 6. It says this, And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that, that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. 
This means that the smoke from the incense when they're burned would, would have filled the holy place, but not just the holy place, it would have also filled the most holy place. The smoke from the incense would rise above the ark, above the mercy seat, to the presence of God, symbolizing the prayers of God's people entering the throne room of God, ascending to his throne where he would hear them and answer them. Again, this just shows one of the the important parts of the priest's ministry was to offer prayers of the people, bring the prayers of the people represented by these incense, put them on the altar and burn them, offer these prayers to the Lord every day, morning and night, which symbolized, again, by the smoking incense. Now, there's something else I want to point out I think this is extremely important, and I think God intentionally does this because uh, there's a connection between the altar of incense, right? This is in the holy place, in the tent portion, to burn incense, it's gold, and the bronze altar in the courtyard. Think about it. They both are square. I think that's intentional. They both have horns on the corners, which is very intentional, too. Look very similar, in other words, just different in size, one made of gold, one made of bronze. They both burn things, and not just burn things, but as we learned, transformed them into smoke, and that smoke would ascend to God. They both were used in the morning and evening, consistently. Look at verse 7. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. Meaning, every time the daily sacrifices were being burned, which happened in the morning and evening, every time that that was happening, right, in the courtyard, at the same time, incense were being burned within the tent morning and evening. There's a connection. There's a connection between the bronze altar in the courtyard and the golden altar in the holy place. And, and I think it, this is most clearly seen by, by the word altar, which is interesting. It's interesting that the altar inside the tent is called an altar. Because an altar, the Hebrew word that's translated altar, is a place for making sacrifices. And yet God made it clear in verse 9 that there would be no sacrifices burnt on this altar, only incense. So why is it called an altar? Well, here's why. God is purposely making a connection between prayer and sacrifice. He's showing that it's only because of the sacrifice on the bronze altar that he hears the prayers of his people symbolized by the incense on the golden altar. Listen to what Psalm 141 says says again, verse 2, it says this, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. There's a connection between prayer and sacrifice. Meaning, the two altars were a daily reminder that the life of prayer depended on having a sacrifice for sins. What secured a place before the throne of God's grace was the atoning blood that was shed for sins. The two altars are connected, and they both pointed forward to Jesus. 
We've already seen how the bronze altar points forward to Jesus, to his sacrificial death on the cross, which atones for our sins, pays for our sins. He is our sacrifice. But listen, the golden altar within the tabernacle, within the holy place, also pointed forward to Jesus. It pointed forward to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. After Jesus' death, he was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven to the right hand of God, into the heavenly realm, the throne room of God. He is now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us. It's because of his sacrifice that when we pray in the name of Jesus, God hears our prayers. Our prayers ascend into heaven and he hears them. He answers them. He may not answer them in the way you want him to answer them, but he answers them. He answers them in the way that's best for us and for his glory. Because he loves his people. Amen. Again, there's a connection between the two altars. And that's because there's a connection between sacrifice and prayer. Our prayers are heard because of the sacrificial death of Christ. Listen to Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, these are believers, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's the throne room of God. We have confidence, or it's dangerous for the priest to do that, but, but for us, we, we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. We can have a relationship with God that, that, that none of the priests or the Old Testament saints had. We can have a relationship with God. We can enter into the most holy place and, and boldly approach the throne of grace because of the blood of Jesus. Again, there's a connection between the sacrifice of Christ and God hearing our prayers. That's why the altar of incense was called an altar. It connected the two altars. So that's the symbolism. It's the symbolism. It's the symbolism between the bronze altar and the golden altar. Let me just ask this question, and maybe this is a question you can discuss in your small groups. Does that mean God doesn't hear the prayers of unbelievers? Well, in one sense, God hears everything, right? But in another sense, no. He does not hear the prayer of unbelievers in the way he hears the prayers of believers whose sins have been atoned for by Christ, who are his children. Amen. That means if you're not a believer this morning, God does not hear you in the same way he hears me. I just want to be clear on that. Trust in his son. Put your faith in him. Let me end today with, with one very important, practical, and really simple application that comes from the golden altar. Remember, it was to be lit morning and night. The altar was to burn incense, meaning 
there was instance constantly in the holy place, in the most holy place, morning and night, meaning morning and night, smoke ascended to the throne room of God, representing the prayers of the people. Here's the practical application. God desires us to pray often. In fact, always. Let me end with one verse. First Thessalonians 5.16, which says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I hear a lot of people ask, I want to know what God's will is for my life. Well, he just tells you right here, pray without ceasing. <laughs> Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I don't say that arrogantly, that that you hear my prayers differently than an unbeliever, Lord. I say that humbly. Lord, it's a great privilege that you would listen to a sinner like me. And it's not because I'm someone special within myself. It's because you love me and sent your son to die on the cross for my sins, Lord. Lord, I say that maybe hard truth for some to hear, Lord, as a plea for them to put their faith in your son that they could have the same relationship I have with you, that, that they can be adopted into your family as a father listens to, to his children, Lord. You listen to us. God, forgive us where we lack in prayer. I pray that we are a church of prayer, that each and every person, Lord, that's a part of this body, daily, morning, night, all day long, never cease to to lift up prayers like the incense within the tabernacle to you, Lord. Help us, Lord, be more faithful and more constantly aware of our relationship with you in your son's name. Amen.